Let us turn this afternoon in God's Word to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. We'll consider another prophecy of the Messiah. The text for the sermon will be the first eight verses of Isaiah 42. Due to the length of the text, we will not reread it. So I ask that you pay special attention to verses 1 through 8. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare, before they spring forth I tell you of them. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea, and all that is therein, the isles and the inhabitants thereof. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar doth inhabit, let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare his praise in the islands. The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. I have long time holden my peace. I have been still and refrained myself. Now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. I will make waste mountains and hills and dry up all their herbs, and I will make the rivers islands, and I will dry up the pools. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them, and not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images. 
that say to the molten images, Ye are our gods. Hear, ye deaf, and look, ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I send? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but he heareth not. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. They are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivereth for a spoil, and none saith restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil, and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore he hath poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle. And it hath set him on fire round about, yet he knew it not. And it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. May God bless the reading of his scriptures unto our hearts. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, at the time of the writing of the book of Isaiah, the nation of Israel was at a very spiritually low and weak point. There was at this time in Israel division. The northern ten tribes have had separated off from the southern two tribes, so that brother was turned against brother, sister against sister, parents against children. Not only was there division in God's covenant nation, but as well there was at this time the worship of false gods. The Israelites generally had fallen from the faithful worship of Jehovah God in his holy temple and had turned instead to false gods, the figment of man's imaginations. Hands had they, but they handled not. Eyes had they, but they were unable to see. God chastised Israel for her spiritual backsliding. The chastisement that God gave to Israel was a weakening of her physical defenses. Instead of being a strong, independent nation that was able to fend off the enemies who would frequently attack this nation, the borders of Israel were weakened so that the enemies could come and attack important cities and towns in the nation of Israel. It's in that context that Isaiah the prophet is commissioned by the Lord to go and bring a word unto this nation. 
And the word that Isaiah brings is a striking word. See, this is not the first time that the nation of Israel has become guilty of falling back into sins of idolatry and the sin of schism, division. It's happened before. In times past, when Israel fell into sin, God would come unto them and he would bring unto them a stern word of rebuke, calling them to repent. This text has a different emphasis. Oh, to be sure, there is found in this text the call to repent and to turn from their wicked ways. But instead of explicitly calling Israel to repent and place their faith and trust in Jehovah God, God comes to Israel and he says, Look, behold my servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. God knew that there was power in beholding this servant. May God grant us grace this afternoon and that we might by faith behold his servant. We use that as our theme, behold my servant. First, consider that he is an elect Servant, looking especially at verse 1, my servant whom I uphold, mine elect. Second, a ministering servant, looking at those to whom he ministers and the way that he ministers to them. And then third, a visible servant, looking at that word, behold. Behold my servant, elect, ministering, visible Through Isaiah the prophet, God's word to Old Testament Israel was, Behold my servant. Servant. Now when we think of servant, we think of one who is under the authority, one who is under the control or the rule of another individual. That individual is the master. The master has a greater level of power. The servant has an inferior level of power or authority. And so it is the case then that the servant with the lesser measure of authority must submit unto the master who has the right to rule over him. In Western culture, when we conceive of servanthood, we are not generally taught to have a positive or favorable view of servanthood. And that especially because of the abuse over the years that has happened in master and servant relationships. But when the Bible speaks of servanthood, especially servanthood unto God, the Bible does not present servanthood in a negative light. 
To be a servant is not a negative, a bad, a dishonorable position to have. What mattered was, what is the character of the one who is your master? The greater that your master was, the more honor there was to be the servant of that individual. And we could understand that. Well, imagine that you were called upon to be the servant, an assistant unto the most powerful man in the United States. If you were called upon to assist the president of the United States of America, well, that would be an honor to have such a prestigious position given unto you. And that because servanthood, the, the amount of honor that comes with servanthood is determined by the greatness of the one who is the master. The question is not how great am I, but the question is how great is the one whom I am privileged to serve. This servant that is spoken of in the text clearly enjoyed a good relationship with the master. Behold my servant whom I uphold. It's not as if this servant was left unto himself, left to fend for or care for himself, but this servant was upheld by the one who put him in office. Behold my servant whom I uphold. And then he's described as well as mine elect. He's the elect servant. Now, when we conceive of election, generally what we think of is that eternal, that unchangeable decree of God. Election is God's choice, His choosing of certain people. In eternity, God chose certain individuals to be His people, and He wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life. He appointed them unto salvation in Jesus Christ. And he preserves these elect in their salvation. So when we speak generally of the idea of election, we speak of God's choice of all of his people. And yet, beloved, we may speak more narrowly of this idea of election. This text does not speak of many elects, but one elect. There is one who is chosen by God. There is one elect servant. He is the predominant, the outstanding elect. He is the elect, the chosen one, in whom all the other elect are gathered unto God. We saw that truth revealed in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. According as he, God, hath chosen us in him, the servant. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. 
in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. And so then there is a most intimate and close relationship between the servant and the master. The servant is chosen, the chosen one by God. God looks upon this servant with pleasure and with delight in whom my soul delighteth, the text tells us. God does not look upon this servant viewing this servant to be disagreeable to him, finding that this servant was the best that was available, so he settled for this servant. But rather, this is the chosen, the predominant servant of God. His servant lived in close friendship with God, that he is the elect servant, beloved, calls attention to the fact that God covenanted with this servant. God did not establish a mere cold or formal relationship with this servant. This is not the relationship of two businessmen, but for the purposes of advancing their respective businesses, enter into a formal contract together. But this is a relationship of love and of trust. This is a relationship wherein the master was confident that the servant would not break the bruised reed. This is a relationship wherein the master was confident that the servant would be able to loose the prisoners and restore eyesight to the blind. Now who is this elect servant? The children know it, but there's a difficulty, is there not? Are you going to say that Jesus Christ is a servant? Are you going to say that Jesus Christ is the servant who then is inferior to God? You sense the difficulty. To be a servant implies that there are levels of power, authority. The servant is the one who has inferior authority to the one who is the master. The one who has less power. And now this text teaches us that Jesus Christ is the servant? It almost sounds blasphemous to suggest that Jesus has an inferior power to God. To answer this question, beloved, we must remember that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, had two natures. He had on the one hand a divine nature, and he was God of gods. And he had on the other hand a human nature, 
and he was flesh of our flesh and bone of our bones. When this text speaks of Jesus Christ as being God's servant, the elect in whom God's soul delighteth, this text is speaking here of Jesus Christ, especially from the viewpoint of Jesus Christ as the incarnate one. Jesus according to his human flesh. Jesus Christ as the eternally begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who is with God in the beginning, by whom the heavens and the earth and all that is therein were created, is in no sense inferior unto the first person of the Trinity who is the Father. But when this text speaks here of Jesus Christ as the servant, it speaks of him according to his human nature. This is the confession of the ecumenical church in the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed sets forth the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the Athanasian Creed, Articles 32 and 33, we confess the following, quote, Perfect God, so this is speaking of Christ, perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, unquote. Behold, how Jesus Christ, as he was born in Bethlehem, assumed the form of a servant. He surrendered himself unto the authority and unto the will of God. Though, according to Philippians 2, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, though he was the eternally begotten Son of God and had all the power and glory and wisdom and honor of God himself, yet Jesus Christ, in obedience unto the Father, came down into this world and was born of a woman. As a man, Jesus Christ became a servant who entered into this will in order to carry out the will of his Master, who was his Father in heaven. This, beloved, is the miracle and the wonder of Christmas. How is it even possible that he who was God and equal with God could be born in Bethlehem? The Bible makes a number of bold claims which, apart from faith, man is not able to believe. The Bible claims that in six 24-hour days he created the heavens and the earth. And man, apart from faith, staggers at that word of God and says, I cannot believe that there must be some other explanation for how the heavens and the earth came into existence. The Bible claims that in the days of Noah, God sent a universal flood. God opened up the depths of the earth so that water came out of the depths of the earth and as well sent 
a deluge of water from the heavens above and covered even the highest mountain so that every person on this earth died except Noah and his family. And the unbeliever, as he hears that, says no. Marvelous, though those works of God are. Is there anything more marvelous than this? That he who was and is divine, God of gods and Lord of lords, who cannot be contained, who is so great that the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, came down into this world and was born of a virgin. The scriptures present this truth to us not so much for our comprehension, for who can comprehend it, but for our adoration. Behold my servant. God sent this servant into the world in order that he might minister unto us. He fulfilled the work of God by delivering his people. Consider with me who it is that he delivers. We read of this in the seventh verse. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. A vivid description given here of the one who is delivered by this elect servant. Here sits a man, and he's in a prison cell, a dark and dank prison cell. His hands and his feet are shackled with iron. He cannot see, for it is dark in that cell. If there was light, he still would not be able to see, for this man is blind. This man is growing weaker day after day inside this cell. He has no ability or power of himself to escape this prison. He depends entirely upon the mercy and power of someone else to find him and deliver him. That person in that prison cell is you and me by nature. Would to God that it were the case that we were down in that prison cell apart from our will. Would to God that it were the case that someone mightier than us had come and had sought to impose his will upon us, capture us, and drag us resisting down into that prison cell. That we wanted to be out of that prison cell, that we wanted to dwell in the light, that we delighted in God's holy laws, that we sought to be free but that instead, against our will, we were dragged, kicking and screaming down into that prison cell. If only that were the case. 
But the reality is, beloved, we willfully walked into that prison cell. That's what sin is. Lawless rebellion against Jehovah God. It is saying yes unto the tempter and unto sin. It is offering one's hands and one's ankles to be bound in iron. The iron of sin. There is a devastating power to sin. And once one gives himself or herself willingly unto sin, one becomes shackled by that sin. He sits there destitute, spiritually destitute, spiritually controlled by that sin. Although earlier he had the freedom to choose to sin, Now that he is in that prison cell, he does not have the ability to choose to get out of that prison cell. Jesus Christ, God's elect servant, was sent to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. He works powerfully, graciously, and quietly. Observe how quietly he works, according to the second verse. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He's quiet because he does not need to shout. He does not need to call attention to himself. He does not need to promote himself. That's what the world does. The kings of the world are going to come to a certain place, a certain city or town, and they come to that town with great pomp and circumstance. They announce to all that they are coming there and everyone should stand at the ready for this important individual who is coming into town. That's the methods that the world uses. The world raises up its voice in order to defend itself. The world, the business world, through advertising, is constantly trying to outshout the other business, clamoring to capture the attention of the desired market. That's what the weak person must do. The person who is insecure of himself must resort to shouting. And perhaps even at times we as parents resort to shouting. At first we tell our children, be quiet, and they don't listen. Be quiet, and then they still don't listen. And with even more vigor and volume, be Quiet. We do that because our commandments at times lack power. Our commandments are not respected, and so we intensify the volume and the urgency with which the commandments are given, but not so for this elect servant of Jehovah. He does not need to lift up his voice to cause his voice to be heard even in 
the street, for he is the almighty and the all-powerful God. He is the God who, at times, whispers. He speaks in a still, small voice. He is the God who speaks even through events of creation, the blowing of the wind. He is the God who is powerful by his spoken word. He sends forth his word, and his word will not return unto him void. He labors quietly, and he labors gently. Notice the gentleness with which he ministers as it's described for us in the third verse. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. A reed is a tall and slender plant, a type of grass, oftentimes found in wetlands, And according to this text, this reed is bruised. And the idea is that it has been injured. It's been bent over so that it no longer stands upright. It is not yet dead. It still is connected to its roots. And yet it has been seriously injured. The other figure that's used in this text is that of the smoking flax. And the idea here is of a candle with a wick. And on that wick there is a flame that's burning, but the flame is not a steady flame. It's not a brightly burning flame, but it is a flickering flame. It's close to being extinguished. It's smoking. Perhaps there's moisture in the wick. And so that wick does not burn well, but it produces a lot of smoke as it burns off the moisture that's found in that wick. And all it will take is a gust of air too powerful, and that smoking flax will be extinguished. The Word of God here describing for us the ministry of this elect servant is that he is so gentle as he labors with the bruised reed and the smoking flax that they will not be broken or quenched. This is a picture of how God works with his church. The bruised reed and the smoking flax consists of the people of God. And as we go through this life, we certainly can relate to this figure of the bruised reed. We feel like that blade of grass, so insignificant, so vulnerable, that all it takes is a misplaced footstep, and we're bent over, bruised, and injured. Countless different blows that come to us throughout this life by which we are bruised. 
There's sickness in the home. There's a cancer diagnosis. You're bruised. There's trouble in the home. Ungodly children who do not submit to honor, or who do not honor father and mother. And the parents bring the word of God unto them and instruct them, and yet the children refuse that instruction. And there is another bruise on that delicate piece of grass. And then there are our own sins that arise forth from us, which we hate and we plead of God that He would deliver us from those sins, but then we fall into sin again and again, and after a while we start to doubt and fears and anxieties fill our minds. Am I a child of God if I continue falling into this same regrettable sin time after time bruised. And then there's conflict among members of the church. Conflict among members of the community. Difficulties in the workplace. Financial struggles. Bruise after bruise comes upon the child of God and after a while it feels as though the case for us is hopeless. We are like that smoking flax where the fire is about ready to be extinguished and it seems that there is no more light and no more life within us anymore. The word of God is that this elect servant whom he sends to minister will not break the bruised reed. He does not harass or oppress the people of God. He is not angry with the righteous, but in his tender, loving care, he takes that bruised reed, heals it, and stands it upright again. This shows, does it not, beloved, the grace of God. For why else would he care? about a reed, a bruised reed. Who of us, as we're walking along and sees a bent-over piece of grass, takes the time to minister to that piece of grass? That's what we are. Jehovah God, in the condescension and birth of His Son, Jesus Christ, came to minister to the bruised reed. Behold him, beloved. Behold him, for he is visible. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. Behold him, for God has revealed this ministering servant unto you. God is not ashamed of this servant. God does not command this servant to be tucked away so that you do not see him as we enter into the house of God. But God's commandment as we enter into his house is behold him, see him above everything and anything else that you see on this earth. Behold my servant. Behold him, beloved, for your own good. It is for the good of 
your souls and for your minds that you behold this servant. The temptation is not to behold this servant, but to have our eyes be diverted elsewhere. And where oftentimes do our eyes go but unto ourselves? And we see how miserable we are. We see how we are like that bruised reed. We consider our low estate. We consider how we've been hurt, how we've been forgotten about. We consider all of the trials and the hardships that are ours in this earthly pilgrimage. And then the devil would have us would use those self-reflections to bring us into a low state of despondency. God, in his love for you, instructs you, look at my servant. We acknowledge that we are bruised reeds and as a smoking flax. And now God says, look Behold, my servant, as he came into this world. Behold how he was born in little Bethlehem, Ephratah. Behold how he suffered all his life long. Behold him as the righteous one who lived in sinless, a sinless, holy life. Behold him as he took our sins and the curse due unto us for them upon himself. Behold how he went down into that dark prison cell. Behold how he offered his hands not only to be shackled, but to be pierced upon the cross. Behold, as he drank that cup of God's wrath to pay for the sins of his elect people. Behold him and worship him. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another neither my praise to graven images. May it be the case, beloved, that your beholding of God leads you unto the zealous and faithful worship of Jehovah God. May it not be the case that you behold him merely intellectually. May it not be the case that you understand the doctrines regarding this servant May you be able even to give a distinction of his human nature and divine nature, but then that that does not affect your heart. But may it be the case that as you behold this elect servant who came to minister unto God's own people, that your beholding of him moves you unto grateful praise and worship of Jehovah God. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow 
of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let us pray. Father and our God in heaven, by faith we do behold the servant of Jehovah, the author and the finisher of our faith, who was delivered for our offenses and who was raised for our justification. Thou work in our hearts that we might be faithful servants. May we love one another, and above all else, may we love thee, the great and holy God. Wilt thou receive our worship? Wilt thou graciously forgive whatever was done or said in sin? For Jesus' sake we pray this. Amen.